Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Would you all stand with me uh, for the reading of the gospel? Uh, last week, we, or the, the last two weeks, we've been going through some of the I Am statements of Jesus, and we're on uh, what is our third week, but what is Jesus' sixth I Am statement in the gospel of John. Uh, and this is John 14, verses 1 through 14. This is Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. That I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have, have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You can say, show us the Father. Do you not believe that I am, that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Well, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the gospel of the Lord. You can be seated. Would you all pray with me as we consider this together? Um. Our Father, we do thank you. I thank you that you um, speak to us. Uh, not only that you delight to hear from us as we prayed earlier, but that you, that you actually speak back to us in your word. And so I pray as we consider it this evening um, that it wouldn't just be um, something that we do going through the motions, or that we wouldn't just try to get some sort of insight from it, Lord, but that it would change us. It would change our hearts as we, as we learn who Jesus is more and more clearly. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Um, I think you could probably say this about all sorts of different, uh, different metaphors or different things that go on in, in the Bible, but um, I've heard the Bible described as, as a going home story, um, and, and I think it absolutely is that, right? If we remember when God created Adam and Eve, um, at the very beginning, he, they walked with God in the very cool of the day, right, as it says. But in their sin and in their rebellion, they are exiled, which is just a fancy word for saying they got kicked out of the house, 
right? They got kicked out of their home. And not because God wasn't gracious, it was actually in God's grace that they did so. See, in their sin and in their rebellion, they couldn't be around God any longer. And Genesis 3.22 says, Well, lest Adam reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, well, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. See, it was so that they didn't end up in that state of sin and misery forever. So they're kicked out of the garden. They're kicked out of God's presence, and they begin to wander. And so uh, we follow the story a little bit further, and we get to Abraham. Right? And Abraham is promised, even though he is a wanderer, he's promised a land, but he doesn't get to inherit it, and neither do his offspring immediately. But his offspring's offspring, offspring, you know, you get the point, right? Through the centuries, and finally the ones who actually are the ones who inherit it are those who were wandering in the desert for most of their lives before they actually begin and get to inherit the land. But then that same cycle happens yet again to God's people. In some aspect of disobedience, they're kicked out of their home, they're exiled yet again, and they wander. Right? And that story, that story of Scripture, is the same story that we all have. It's not just the Israelites who wander, but it's us who wander as well, right? We're all in search of a home beyond just a place to sleep, beyond just a place where we keep our stuff. We want a place to belong. We want to be welcomed for who we are, to find peace and acceptance. Right? So we wander like the children's book, Are You My Mother?, Right, looking at every different home. Are you, are you my home? Are you my home? I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. Maybe this is my home. Well, that's, that's what Jesus is talking about when he tells and, and states this sixth I am statement to the disciples here. Right, so verse 14 of John's gospel is right at the end of... of um, of their, their, the, the Last Supper, um, of the time of communion with Jesus and his disciples. Right? They've just communed together, and Jesus has just told them about the betrayal that is to come and that he's going to die. So then, that's where we enter with verse 1, when Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Why would he say that? Well, he's saying it because their hearts are troubled. Their hearts are troubled about the fact that Jesus has just said he's going to die. See, their hearts had been wandering and their hearts had found home in Jesus Christ. But now he's saying, I'm going away. I'm about to die. And so their hearts are troubled yet again. But he's leaving. He says he's leaving, but he's leaving for a purpose Right? Not just any purpose, but to prepare a home. And so now all of a sudden his disciples are a little bit nervous again. Right? What kind of home is it? Is it going to be big enough? Will they, well, I know how to get there. Right? That's their concerns. In the face of their anxious worries, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And that is uh, what we're going to look at together this, this evening. And we're going to look in two particular ways. First, the exclusivity of Christ's claim, but then we're going to look actually at the radically inclusive aspect of what Christ is claiming here as well. So the exclusivity and the inclusivity of Christ. Let's first look at the exclusivity of Christ. Um, We live in a very pluralistic society. You've heard this before, right? We we live around uh, people of different nationalities. Houston is is the most uh, diverse city in America, 
um, different nationalities, different ethnicities, and different religious traditions. And so it's tempting in this context to think, well, like, we live in, a, in the most pluralistic uh, of contexts, and so we read this passage a little bit differently than maybe even how Jesus uh, stated it here. Well, that's actually really false. Um, the Roman Empire was, was almost, if not exactly, as pluralistic as we are uh, today. Right? Um, see, so when Jesus claims that he is the way, the truth, and the life, it's, it's just as offensive back then as, as it is now. In fact, one of the reasons um, for Christian persecution in the first and second century by the Roman people was that they actually believed that Christians were atheists. Um, now, it's not in, in the traditional sense in which we use that word now, but, um, but atheists back in those days uh, were those that did not believe or adhere to the Roman gods. See, in the Roman Empire, you could worship any god that your nation or your, or your state uh, ha- had beforehand, as long as you also worship the Roman gods. Because they believed that if you didn't worship the Roman gods, that is what would bring ultimately civic unrest. That is what would cause marketplace discomfort. All of those other sorts of things. And because the Christians refused to worship the Roman gods, they were atheists. Every time there was some sort of unstable situation in the Roman Empire, the Christians were blamed. And by that logic, rightfully so, right? The Romans hated the Christians because of their exclusivity. And Christ is saying something very exclusive here. He's saying that there is no other way into his promised home, right? We don't get to pick and choose the way that we want to go. We don't get to kind of go through the buffet line of life, leaving behind everything that we don't want and end up somehow in home. Um, I certainly know that anybody in my family, when they go through the buffet line and the salad bar, does not end up with the most scrumptious of salads, right? It's not great to put strawberries together with ranch dressing despite the fact that those two things are delicious on their own. No, we don't get to pick and choose. It's actually that desire to pick and choose, that desire uh, uh, to determine what is right and what is wrong. It's that sinful desire, ultimately, that leads to our wandering, that led to our exile before, but leads to our continued wandering from there. It's what turns us into, into vagabonds, And we're incapable of finding home on our own. We can't find it through our own goodness. We can't find it through our own achievement. And we can't find it through our own reason. I want to look at those three things in in closer detail. Um, We can't find it in our own goodness. No matter how good we think we are, we are not good enough. The goodness that originates from within, that that, that kind of moralistic goodness or even desires to be good that come from within and not from without, they they lead to a puffed up spirit into that exact same situation of lostness. Um, Theologian Richard Loveless uh, and church historian as well at at Gordon-Conwell wrote a book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Change. And, um, and he's actually, uh, he's quoted here uh, in the reflection page of your bulletin. 
Um, in the book, he's, he's noting the historical means or, uh, and desires of Christians to change um, and how they may or may not fit ultimately with the biblical models. So he notes that, that, there's, that there's a tendency, particularly in American Christianity, um, to, to have sort of a moralistic good. Uh, meaning that the, there's attempts to better ourselves, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and to make us good on our own. He says this. He says, Many draw their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity. Right? Their, maybe their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscience. Willful disobedience. Their insecurity shows itself in pride a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. Well, in that quote, um, Lovelace is, is, is uh, applying it into slightly different means, but either way, the, the, the application is, is the same. That sense of goodness ultimately leads toward, uh, toward hatred or othering of people who are not like us, right? Um, that we think all it does is it puffs up, and so therefore I'm now the judge of everyone else. Whether you are a Christian or not, religious performance actually leads to a growing sense of insecurity, anger, and even hatred. So if we are not good enough to lead ourselves home, maybe we can achieve enough. And that's what I want to look at next. Not, not only, uh, as you can probably guess, I'm going uh, negatively here. We're not good enough. We cannot achieve enough either. We always have a temptation to think that to cure my longings or to cure kind of the things that are going on in my life, um, all I need to do is just make it, whatever it is. Once, once I'm out of med school or once I'm, I'm done with all of my training and I'm a real doctor, uh, not that you aren't uh, beforehand, but you get my point, once I kind of get to that finish line, then my life is going to be better. Then it'll all be good. Or maybe once I'm done being single and I'm married, then my life will have made it. Or once I pay off my debts, or once I have children, or once my children are out of the house, whatever it is, see, each time we think, if I make it, but no matter how far we progress, how much we achieve, we are at best left wanting more, and at worst, we're made even more agitated by achieving it. In an article about the achievements of celebrities in New York, um, Cynthia Heimel says this about those celebrities actually achieving their dreams. She says that that, that 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 giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to fill them with a ha -ha happiness, see, it had happened. And the next day they woke up and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. She notes that Every single person she interacted with was more disappointed and upset because their vision of the good life didn't end up exactly as they expected. So we cannot achieve enough either to find our way home. 
Maybe we can reason our way home. N.T. Wright, an English theologian, says, what you're really saying, if you claim that they're all the same, meaning here he's talking about the reason uh, of, of trying to discern who God is in a pluralistic society. If all ways are reasoned to be the same, then they're no more than distant echoes, distorted images of reality. You're saying that reality, God, the divine, is remote and unknowable, and that neither Jesus, nor Buddha, nor Moses, nor Krishna gives direct access to it. They all provide a way towards the foothills of the mountain, not the way to the summit. If it's by our own reason that we figure out who the Lord is in any way, case, or form, then ultimately we're left in a fleeting circumstance that at best we can't really even get there, and He's not really that knowable to begin with. If all ways to God or to home are the same, then we're yet again the ones who determine that reality. And we're pretty terrible at judging any one way over another. We're terrible at knowing God on our own and to struggle, um, and we struggle, um, we struggle with its exclusive claims. We struggle with what it's saying here because to truly understand what Jesus is saying here, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, is to recognize that we are in a state that cannot do anything for ourselves. And that's humiliating. And that's insulting. We want to still believe that we can contribute something to salvation, to believe that we have done some decent things, or that we're pretty genuine about our beliefs. But Christ's claims here begin and they end with Him in exclusivity. He's saying that we don't get to pick our way. If we did, we'd just end up lost again. We're not good enough, we're not smart enough, and people don't like you enough, now, uh, if you know the, the, uh, the skit. No, we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not genuine enough, we are not righteous enough. But God in His grace has decided to show us rebels the way. He makes for us a way home, and He has sent the way to dwell with us. But though Christ is exclusive in his claims that he's the only way back home, this isn't an arrogant claim. This is his grace to us. He is the visible, uh, he is the, the, the visible image of the invisible God. Or as he says in this passage, to see him is to see the Father. So it's a kindness for him to proclaim the benefits that He is our way to an eternal home. Right? Is, it, um, is it arrogant to claim that the COVID vaccine is actually of benefit to people? No. Right? It's, not, it's not arrogant to say uh, that, that it is beneficial to anything that is true and right. Not only is Jesus' claim not arrogant, but it's not arrogant for Christians to proclaim it as well. For as Christians, we're not saying that we know we know who He is, and we know all about His way in our own strength. Actually, we're saying that we were too blind to get it in the first place. That God had to come and tell us. That God had to come and show us the way. But not only that, the way of Christ is the way of humility. It's in being born in poverty. Healing the sick and washing the feet of others. 
Right? It's, it's in the way of the cross. But though it's exclusive, it's, it's incredibly inclusive as well. And so let's look at the inclusive claims of Christ. The way of Christ, it's exclusive in its path, but it's inclusive to all those who would follow it. Whether we are trying, uh, the, the way of the world, we'll say, is ultimately ex- is actually far more exclusive. Whether it's exclusive in its religious moralism or in its secular moralism. In religious moralism, um, we find oftentimes that by living rightly, by trying to be good enough, we end up, as we said earlier, othering people. Right? I am the one in this righteous camp. This is the small group with which, uh, with which we are taking back all things. Right? The, the Qumran community, a community of Jewish people living in the desert near the Dead Sea um, at the time right before Christ, believed that following the way um, was, was to follow God's law down to the T. And in their eyes, they were doing so, but it took a ton of work and it took a ton of effort to walk down that very narrow path. But more importantly, they believed that no other community in Israel was following that path. See, it was an exclusive road, an exclusive road in religious morality. If we just do the right things and live a life of holiness, then we'll be accepted by God and brought into his home. Well, that's actually a very exclusive claim, an exclusive claim to believe that anyone can follow it to the T. But not only is there religious moralism, I think we probably live in an age of secular moralism even more so. Interestingly, our culture is turning from kind of this true pluralism in which there are no moral absolutes into one where there's, there's just some moral absolutes. Today, our society claims that, um, that, that there are just a few more than there were about 50 years ago uh, where there, these moral absolutes revolve around tolerance or acceptance or righteous speech. Jonathan Haidt, who's a, a psychologist uh, and professor at NYU, um, and he's the author of a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's a book about the new wave of struggles on the college campus. And he says this, he says, if you look at a college student handbook today, you'll find policies affecting many other aspects of students', students lives, not the morality with which the college handbooks uh, had in our time, but a new morality, including what they can post on social media, what they can say in the dormitories to one another, and what they can do off campus, including what organizations they can join. See, there's actually a new moral rigidness in secular culture. You cannot violate these these holiness laws because if you do, then you're actually cut off. You're exiled in your own way. And unfortunately, our secular society doesn't have a means by which you can then be reconciled. You're exiled and continually wandering. You're silenced or maybe fired. And there's no way to be restored or forgiven. So again, yet, yet again, the way of the world is incredibly exclusive. And this way is exhaustive, exhausting and hurtful. Because you have to watch your step at every second, wondering when you're going to slip up. And if you do, then you're going to be made anathema. 
So although Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that is exclusive, he is radically inclusive to who can be a part of it. He mentions in verse 2 that he goes to prepare a home. And the disciples are really concerned. They're concerned about the size of this home. Um, When I was in college, my senior year, a friend of mine invited about 25 of us to stay at his um, at his stepmother's home in, on Southampton Beach in Long Island. Um, and I'd never been to that area of Long Island and didn't realize that homes there are, are typically uh, pretty large. Um, but when we saw how many folks he invited to participate, we're like, okay, this is going to be a nightmare. Where are we going to sleep? How many of us are going to be on the floor? Are we going to have to get a hotel? So we actually fly up to New York, and our flight was really delayed, so we didn't end up getting on a train to get to Long Island. We we finally got off the train at about 2 a.m. and start walking down the street from the train station to the house, and we noticed that these are like enormous mansions. These These are some of the biggest houses I've ever seen. And so all of a sudden we're like, okay, I should have trusted you more. I should have trusted you more when you invited all of us to be a part of this home because there's eight to ten bedrooms and all of us have our own bed. And and actually, not only that, we could have each invited more people to participate, right? We could all fit. Jesus says here, there are many rooms in my Father's house. While there is one exclusive way to get there, this is not a small house, y'all. It's a welcoming home. To any and all who would humble themselves enough to first admit that their way is wrong, to second admit that they need help, and to third acknowledge who Jesus is and that he is the way. But not only are there, are there many rooms, these rooms are open to all. This way is open to all, I should say. Jesus doesn't demand that you walk the perfect moral road. He doesn't demand that you're that your deeds be good enough or that your, your good beliefs outweigh your bad beliefs or that you enhance your spiritual journey uh, by praying every single minute of every single day, whatever it might be. He doesn't demand those things of us. All that he requires of you is that you feel your need of him. And even that is a gift that he gives to you. Eternal life in his, his house is open to all who would follow the way. All of us who would pick up our cross and die to ourselves. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we're to die to our own hubris. That we're to humble ourselves, admit that our way of living is wrong, that it's sinful. And not only that, but that we even need to repent of our virtues. We don't stop there. We turn We turn toward Jesus, toward the way, the truth, and the life, recognizing that in him is a far bigger home and a far bigger house than whatever I experienced in Southampton, New York. It's a home that's large enough, but more importantly, it's a home that is welcoming and that is loving. It's a home where we're loved, not for what we've been able to accomplish, not for the goodness that we think we're able to do or for the reason that we believe that God gave to us, of which he did. But we're accepted because of the cross of Christ. We're loved and accepted because he died so that we might live. 
and we turn and we know that in Him is life. Well, let me conclude with this. Um, one of my favorite things, uh, there weren't that many things to enjoy about quarantine time during COVID, but one of my favorite things about it was the way in which all of our lives were exposed on Zoom. Um, we kind of just had to be okay with it. Um, and and by, the, by the end of our times on Zoom, maybe like month six or so, we were like inviting other people into our homes via Zoom. Right? A cat would hop in, into our laps in the middle of a, of a teleconference and people would begin to like it, right? Or you'd see clothing piled in the back of someone's, uh, of someone's room and it was no big deal. Right? We, re- we began to be more comfortable and feel accepted enough to allow elements of our home to come through. Right? In this very, very, very small way, right? that's just a foretaste of what it will feel like when we're welcomed home. When we're welcomed to the everlasting life that is offered to us in Jesus Christ when we're welcomed into the home with many rooms, right? For in that home, we're loved, accepted, and cared for, and we don't have to put our laundry away. We don't have to to polish over ourselves and make ourselves look better than we actually are because we are accepted in Jesus Christ. Yes, there is an exclusive way. Salvation, rest, home comes only through Jesus. Our ways, our ways lead to wandering. But through Him and His way of the cross, there is rest and peace, and it's exclusive. But it's radically inclusive as well to any and all who would follow. The path is singular, but it is wide. You don't have to worry about falling off to the left or to the right. You don't have to be perfect. All you have to do is humble yourself to pick up your cross And follow Him, because in Him you have to wander no longer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You. I thank You that in Jesus Christ You are making a home for us. I thank You for what You promised to us, Lord, that yes, You are the way and the truth and the life, but in that, Lord, You are guaranteeing us a place in Your Father's house if we but turn and follow You. And so I pray that we would do so this evening. I pray for any of those who are struggling with belief or for those who might be considering what Jesus is saying here for the very first time. I pray that they would, that they would see Jesus not in, um, not in any exclusive claim, Lord, though it is exclusive, but rather that they would recognize the deep, deep love of Jesus Christ. And that all that he requires of us is that we turn to you and feel our need of you. And even this you give to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.